Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Stephen Hayhurst. He's the Senior Vice President at Enstoa. So, Stephen, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Toss, for having me. I'm really happy to be here and really grateful for your invitation. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, we connected on Lunch Club and you were in the built environment. So that was really interesting. But you were originally studied biophysics and biochemistry. What was that about? Oh, wow. That was a great diversion in my, a great diversion and an interesting footnote in my youth. So let, let's actually go back in time to, where was it? It was probably elementary school where I had a number of great teachers who had a great enthusiasm for science and instilled that in me. And so that led to starting science fair projects in middle school, which led to science fair projects in high school and studying specifically nitrogen fixing root nodules and leguminous plants, specifically alfalfa for many years. And so I, I was known throughout the high school as the root nodule guy. And that, of course, led to my interest in spending more time uh, uh, studying sciences in, in college. So I was for many a summer in my college years, like a lab rat, kind of, you know, doing test tube work with pipette men and transferring various DNA and RNA and fluids to make various reactions. Anyway, so yeah, that was an interesting diversion of my youth. I thought that I might go into academia, but had changed, had changed course right after graduation. Awesome. So you said science fairs too. So what was your favorite experiment or presentation? Oh, that's an, that's an interesting question. So I will actually talk about a couple other of my classmates who had really cool ones. There's a guy named Ron who did a present, or who did like a science fair project on buckyballs, which is C60, which is like a, ge, you know, geodesic domes that were, that were kind of big by a guy named Buckminster Fuller. Okay. So a C60, which is basically like a geodesic dome, it's like a, a spherical carbon molecule made up of 60 carbon atoms. That the name of the, the name of which Buckminster Fullerene. It comes from Buckminster, the guy who did the geodesic dome. Anyway, so Ron did some really cool stuff with that. And then there was another guy in my class who did some really cool like plant breeding experiments. And I think spent many a month like trying to get these, try to isolate interesting variations of flowers. So like, I guess my high school just had like some really cool people doing some really cool stuff from science fairs. Uh, so that was all really cool. So yeah, yeah it was good. Well, it sounded like a good environment. So how did you sort of pivot into some of the other stuff that you were, you're part of now? Well, that's a fair question. So if I go back to like 2002, I actually ended up going to a bar one night and I met some friends who were fellow alums of the college I graduated from a few years prior. And they introduced me to some guys and I became friends with some other guys and started volunteering with the human rights campaign in New York for a couple of years. And through whom I met a friend of mine and I was chatting with him about kind of career aspirations. And he had just joined this, uh, what he described as a small techie consulting startup kind of deal and said, hey, you should come check it out. And so I came to check it out. And so here I am. 11 years, one month, and 15 days later, celebrating the many hats that I've had a chance to wear at Instoa, the company that I'm currently with. Yeah, yeah. So give us a, a quick thumbnail, what you do there, what the company does. Sure, sure. So I get, I'll probably answer this in uh, four different ways. So 
I'll tell you what the company does. I'll tell you what historically I've done. I'll tell you what I currently do now. And then I'll tell you kind of like really, really what we do do. Okay. So the organization says it's founding. We've been focused on digital transformation for the built environment. So we help organizations that have large capital construction programs put in place strategy of how they want to approach their capital construction programs. We develop improved processes and controls, and then we, we operationalize those improved processes and controls with enterprise software to help both the project managers in their day-to-day work be more effective and efficient in what they do. But then with the attendant BI and analytics, kind of aggregate all the information across all those projects and present to management and to the executive team and understanding how their portfolio in the aggregate is going in terms of cost, scope, schedule, so they have an idea if they're on track or not, and how they can react to new opportunities or challenges that that uh, that come up. So that's kind of what we do. So that's kind of what we do. So professional services in that space, doing systems implementation, process design work, the attendant integration, analytics, training, and support. But we do have some products that we develop the integration side to help all of those enterprise systems speak. But that's kind of really the, the focus of what we do. And we do that for public utilities, public infrastructure, healthcare is a significant part of what we do. Anybody who's doing a lot of managing and purchasing a lot of construction work, so large construction programs, renovation, et cetera, well, those will be the, the, our target clients, generally the owner side, not the contractor side. When you talk about large projects, what are you talking about in terms of range? Sure. These are not just regional small things that you're doing. Yeah, so it's actually interesting. So the mix of projects can be everything from like healthcare systems are doing like in-the-box renovations. So they are renovating you know, medical suites and things like this to building new hospitals, all the way up to some clients, especially in the Middle East, who are essentially building new cities and new provinces. So the scope of which has not been seen for many, many generations. And the challenges that those organizations face from the small end to the big end is they have many projects that they have to manage a certain level of complexity, a lot of stakeholders, both internal and external, with whom they need to coordinate. And so, and of course, all of this is very expensive work. So the, the challenges we see at the kind of a larger end are not completely dissimilar from what we see at the smaller end of the spectrum. It's just that they just have a lot more of it. So yeah, so we, we our work really spans all sorts of industries and all sorts of sizes of, of portfolios of projects. And where do the challenges or what sort of main problem that you, are you trying to solve with the technologies that you're trying to integrate into these solutions? Sure. I guess this will kind of go, you know, how I mentioned, I want to talk about four things about what I do. This will go to the fourth point. And really at the heart of what we do is we help the employees of our clients, we help them make their work more meaningful. And what do we mean by that? So I mean that we actually time to use a phrase from the late David Graeber's book, we reduce bullcrap work. And we help team members really focus on the high value activities that they were hired to do. And the reason I say this is because when we talk with our customers and we engage kind of their, their workforce to understanding how they're doing their work, it's not uncommon to us to find many organizations with team members who spend a lot of time trying to find the data they need, collecting, collating, sanitizing, harmonizing the data they need so that they can, at the very end, do that analysis work that they're supposed to do. So a lot of our work is to take out all of that operational friction of that process, kind of serve up information to people quicker and easier so that they can actually spend a lot more time 
focusing on the analysis work they need to do. So that's kind of like high level altitude, kind of how we describe what we do. We make people's work more meaningful by eliminating all the bullcrap work. Yeah. <laughs> now, but, but more specifically, some of the challenges that our clients face is they have to collaborate communication with many stakeholders, internal and external. So in construction projects, you've got a lot of contracts to manage, a lot of RFIs and transmittals, and change orders, and invoices, and schedules, and putting in place mechanisms and automated processes that can wrap that information to the right people for review and approval, capture comments, and communicate that information to the stakeholders that need it in an automated and uh, quick and easy to access way is really the kind of fundamental challenges that our clients face. Mm, yeah, you mentioned automation though. I'm curious, mm -hmm. what does that mean when you say automating something, right? That's a fair question. So there's a few different ways in which, in which automation comes to play. There's like small automation, there's big automation. So small automation is if we present, for example, through the systems we implement for our clients, we put in place well-structured well -structured forms that have both data validation mechanisms built in, as well as links to other records that are related to this. Like I would call that small automation, where you prevent somebody from entering in incorrect information, or you auto-populate information from related records. All those things that just help make certain that people kind of enter information, have access to the information they need. So that's kind of small automation. Big automation is kind of where you take certain larger steps and processes, and you can automate them either through a series of either through a series of rules or routing mechanisms that make certain that things get to the right place, or that you prevent additional steps from happening if they're not required. And it's that sensitivity to being able to handle those records in a different manner or that information in a different manner based on the content of that, that allows us to provide efficiencies. Because if it's the case you're dealing with a small invoice that's on under $50,000, it doesn't need to go through 13 different reviews and approvals. That's not a very efficient way of doing this. So there's a ways to kind of build an intelligence to make certain that thing, that the processes are right-sized based on the content of what, what is going through the system. For sure. So you work with smaller and then larger projects or organizations. What are the differences approach or solution? Because obviously the budgets are different. Mm -hmm. So at the smaller scale, are there certain areas that you focus on, certain types of technologies versus the larger scale? What changes there? That's a good question. I think it really one of the key questions we ask our clients is how much control do they want to have on certain areas? And so like there's a, so a, good, a good example would be on schedule management. So as an owner, so let's say, for example, you're a hospital and you've got maybe 100, 150 projects in your portfolio, and you've got maybe a couple dozen project managers. Those project managers do not need to maintain a contractor's level of detail kind of schedule with thousands of tasks. They just don't need that. Now, and so we ask our clients, how much control do you want your team to have? Because if you want control and you need more control, you need to capture more detail which requires more skill from your team members, which requires more configuration complexity in your environment. And so we have to kind of right-size that for clients. In the case of our smaller clients, and of course, when I say small, this is organizations who are spending you know, a couple hundred million dollars a year on capital projects. So from our smaller clients, they may only need to, for each of their project, capture and manage a handful of, of project milestones that helps them manage that, which is very easy to do. And they're really not getting any, that may be at the appropriate level of control, appropriate trade-off on control and effort for that 
Now for larger organizations that are dealing with much more complex projects, the requirements of control because of the complexity, scope, and the cost involved, indeed the duration, will require them to spend more time. And that may, that may require that may require some additional tools or different tools to help them manage that. But it all really comes down to the question of how much sure they want to be based on how much control they want to have, which is necessarily going to dictate the complexity of their system and the skill of their team members. Mm, I'm going to flip that over a bit and say, hey, how much level of control should organizations have? You've seen these type of categories of companies operate. Which ones mm -hmm. operate well? Which ones don't? What level of control are they putting out there? At what levels? Uh, that's okay. So this is a fair question. That actually is probably, I probably can't give you an answer to that because for the third topic that I wanted to comment in terms of like what I do, I'm actually a little bit further away from clients day to day. So it's been a couple of years since I've been working actively on implementation projects. So I, it's probably beyond the envelope of my informed professional experience to give you an appropriate answer right now. So basically, I'm going to thank you for your invitation to, add, to answer that question. I will decline it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That was a very nice way of saying, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Obvious that, you know, your science background sort of, I don't know what lack of a better word, seeps into everything that you do. Does it go into your sort of personal life as well in terms of how you operate and, and do things? Well, that's a, that's a fair question. And I would say that at the heart of science, it's really asking questions, right? And it has been, I have been accused or <laughs> celebrated of being a very thorough question asker, both in professional and personal settings. But I think that that really speaks to a sense of curiosity, which in my youth, I've maybe suffered from and in my, in my adulthood, I benefit from omnidirectional interest. And that level of curiosity is just, I guess, kind of a part of who I am, which leads to question asking, which is good for those who are, I guess, science-minded <laughs> or helpful. It has high utility for those who are science-minded. So. so what are you curious about then? You said you have many oh. interests in, in different directions. What are the things that you are most interested about right now? Okay, so there's like three things I'd have to say right now. So there's kind of the topic of innovation, decisions, and communication. So innovation has been something I've been thinking a lot about because I have, so I used to live in Australia. So 2013 to 2015, we opened up offices in Australia. And so I moved down there. And prior to my going down there, I borrowed from our company library, this book called Unleashing Innovation, which was written about 15 years ago. And it talked about kind of, kind of a, where, from the author's perspective, where they see kind of an interesting breeding ground for innovation. And basically their comment was, they see that innovation occurs often when you take somebody with deep experience in domain A and you put them in domain B and they're able to bring in the innovation from domain into domain B, synthesize new ways of doing things. And so that's actually been really interesting to kind of think about from my professional experience because we have seen instances where, for example, we're working in with retail organizations. And we see some really interesting kind of innovations that they do on the procurement side that we can then apply to the healthcare side. And the reason we can apply it to the healthcare side is because the mix of projects in the healthcare portfolio, especially with them developing non-acute care clinics deeper into communities in your strip malls next to your 7-Elevens and Starbucks, their model looks a little bit more retail than it has historically. So we're able to kind of map that stuff in. And so being able to kind of have these conversations with clients, even casually with with friends socially talking about 
how people can bring to bear their experience from domain A into domain B to synthesize something new, which in part is, is kind of a topic that's raised in another book that was published, I think, fairly recently by David Epstein called Range, Why Generalists Thrive in a Specialized World, which was actually recommended in, I think, the first week or two that I joined the Lunch Club by another, by somebody I was matched with. So the nature of kind of thinking about innovation and how we can pull from a variety of experiences and apply them is really top of mind to me, but balanced with an understanding that you kind of have to have cognitive empathy to really understand the new environment you're put in. So you can understand the organization, how they operate, people who are there, kind of the topology before you start trying to innovate, because you want to make certain you understand the topology of your of the new land you're in before you start paving roads. So that's kind of top of mind. Innovation is one area. I'll pause there. Are there any kind of uh, questions or uh, color I can add? Yeah, no, I, I like that. So as you're collecting information, right? Like mm -hmm. you said, you're trying to figure out the lay of the land in this new area, or it could be a new client. What does that process look like? Do you take notes? Is there anything quantifiable you do? How does that sort of, I feel like it's an immersive process for you look like? I guess it is. And I guess that comes back to the comment earlier. That's like quite a lot of question asking. And I think that's really important because when you're in a new environment and you're really trying to understand something and you have a chance to engage people, like being inquisitive is a sign that you really want to understand somebody's position and kind of how they're operating. And that speaks to your interest in developing and leveraging empathy which I think people just generally respond to. And I think it's a really, it's a really powerful way to interact with people to make certain you really understand. And I think they respond well to that. So to your point, it's, it's a lot of interviews. And actually, when we do a lot of our engagements at the front end, there's a lot of workshops where we do, we are actually going to spend a lot of one-on-one -on -one time, people just asking a lot of questions. And part of that is to learn, but part of that is also to make certain we don't make silly assumptions. And the reason I say that is because from client to client, kind of the definition of certain common terms in our industry are actually different. What a budget means, what an estimate means, what a commitment means, or it can be actually significantly different from client to client. So we actually need to take a step back and like kind of like make certain we're not we're not bringing to the table some preconceived notions of either definitions or expectations, and having those deep one-on-one -on -one conversations with people really helps us align ourselves with how they operate and how they think. Interesting. You brought up something very interesting and throwing very common words like budget and saying that the definitions between clients is vastly different. Can you give me an example of differences? Like I could kind of sort of think about a few, but I think you've had some specific experiences with those. So, Sure. And I'll, I'll talk about it in two different ways. For some organizations, and first I'll talk about like detail and scope. So for some organizations, the concept of a budget can be at like a very high level. It's like a single number. For some organizations, they expect a budget to be kind of like broken out to a very low level detail. And that's important because how they think about that can inform the level of control. So because if you break it down to more levels of detail, you can control your budget at a lower level of detail. But of course, it takes more time to break down your budget to a low level of detail. And so as I mentioned earlier about how there's that sliding scale of like, of complexity versus control, kind of how an organization structure their budget can be very different. So that's just got the level of detail. On the other end, there can be there can be scope. And the scope of the budget can be different where it may include contingency, it may not include contingency. So like your definition of what a budget is. For other instances, some organizations 
use a budget as something formal. For some organizations, a budget is considered like an estimate, which is, it's more like general guidance. So part of it is definition, how it's used and how it's broken down. And all of those things can vary, can vary from organization to organization. And even within organizations, you might even find that there's, there might even be different understandings or different applications of budget across different departments or different types of projects. Mm-hmm. So really having, under, having kind of an understanding of the topology of their definitions of, of certain terms can, can be really important for us to understand. Interesting. Now, you touched on this a little bit, but mm-hmm. how do you ask great questions? You notice people, sometimes they're not sure what to do. But how do you how do you do that better? Okay, so whoa, okay, this this is a great this is a great question because I don't know how to answer this. So let's gonna be we're gonna discuss this in real time with each other. Okay, so I think the first thing is is that when you're engaging somebody and they say something, the first thing that we need to make certain that it, that there's that you ask questions about is when people use a term that you, we make certain we have common understanding about the term. So this is kind of more like a tactical question, it's like. Okay, you said budget. What do you mean by budget? Okay. The second thing is oftentimes people will use will use pronouns, it, them, they, or words that are vague, like then, before, after, or things like this, right? And so kind of touching on those and say, well, who is they? When you say they approve it, who who do you mean by that? And is it always a specific set of people or can change over time? So it's kind of understanding kind of those boundaries. So those are kind of like tactical sets of questions. And then there's like big, like the big questions, which are like, why? Why do we do it like this? And generally, I remember I was chatting with, I was chatting with an acquaintance uh, a couple months ago, and they were like a UX designer. And they, they said, you know, generally we have to ask the question why like five times before we get to the heart of the answer. So, you know, when you're talking about a topic and you kind of want to answer those big questions like why or for what purpose? You've got to ask a lot of why-based questions likely over and over to kind of get the heart, the kernel, the atomic truth of it all. So okay, so I'll pause there. This is all in service of answering your question, which is how do you ask good questions? And I think it's a lot of why-based questions and then a lot of tactical-based questions on your path to the why. Yeah. Interesting. Is that, is that satisfying? Yeah, I think it's good. And how do you, with questioning, sometimes there's question bias, but how do you balance that? Right? <laughs> this is, questions are very leading. How do we uh-huh. protect against that? Oh, how do you protect against question bias? Well, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's something important to think about because uh, I imagine a lot of us sort of find ourselves saying, this question is kind of leading. So even though it's leading, don't let that be leading to you. But that's interesting because I, I, do, I do find myself not infrequently saying this sounds like a leading question, but so I guess, I guess I don't know how to, I don't know. I don't know. That's the, can I come back to you? Like, are you giving me homework? <laughs> well, I mean, we don't, we don't need to know the answer to every question, right? That's the point, right? Being able to yeah. say, I don't know is, is great. I think so. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but let's go to something that you will know. I mean, uh-huh. outside of your, your day-to-day, you're learning lots of different things. Do you have any specific hobbies that you sort of gravitate back to? Yeah, there's a couple things here. So one thing is it's like kind of family-related, like the organizing family photos, which has led us organizing doing the family tree. So you and I discussed, but for the benefit of everybody else who's, who's tuning in now, 
mid-COVID, I moved back to Columbus, Ohio, which is where my mom lives and which is where I grew up from. And I moved back there from New York, where I've been for many years. And so this is this has given me not only great, we try to find the silver linings in COVID where we can. And you know, it's been great to reconnect with, you know, with my mom and have spend a lot more time with her than I have in, in many decades. So, but some of the things we've been doing is organizing family photos, working on the family tree, which has really, really been interesting because we've made some connections to a kind of a long distant relative who is actually a, a fairly famous Victorian artist through who actually in a very cute story that's perhaps the topic of another discussion, it actually turns out that my father's side of the family many decades ago purchased a painting by this artist on my mother's side of the family and they didn't even know. It. And so kind of being able to retrace the history of this person, his kind of really interesting life has been fun and being able to understand how we're related has been really, really interesting. He was this gentleman who, who got his start doing illustrations for illustrated weeklies in Victorian England in like the mid-19th century and moved up to like large-scale genre paintings, one of which hangs in the Tate, and then went on to kind of the maybe the more lucrative but kind of less kind of content interesting vocation of royal portraiture. So some of his some of his paintings hang in the uh, Royal Portrait Gallery or Royal Museum of Portraiture, whatever it is. Anyway, so that's kind of been fun, kind of understanding, kind of understanding his life uh, to a little bit, to a little bit deep, getting a deeper understanding of his life. So yeah, that's kind of like one kind of mix of like family photos, genealogy, art history, history, which has been kind of fun. So that's kind of been a focus of mine since having back here. Wonderful. Yeah, I love those wonderful coincidences. Yeah. Is there anything that I did not cover that you wanted to chat about? Anything top of mind before we sort of sign off? Oh, sure. I did maybe kind of kind of round out. So I really did appreciate our discussion on questions. And I'd like to maybe kind of round this out another topic that we've been thinking about a lot about at work, which is decisions. So uh-huh. answer answers to the questions. And kind of our observation has been that in you know, the past year and a half during COVID, we're finding that we need to make more decisions quicker with imperfect or incomplete data. And, and that, can be a, that can be a real challenge. And so a couple things there. So the first is process, and then the first is kind of like framework. So one of the things that from a framework perspective, when you have to make a lot of decisions, you have to make them quickly and you don't have all the information. Making certain you can make those decisions through the lens of your values, whether or not they're personal decisions or corporate decisions, is really important because that can allow you to act most harmoniously in your world, in your environment. But from a, from a kind of a tactical perspective, we're finding that among our management team, we've instituted these regular decision meetings with our leaders where for an hour we sit down and we go through what we call a decision register, where prior to the meeting, we have people kind of unpack issues kind of like in a Supreme Court or in like a, a court uh, decision that kind of have like the statement of facts, like this is what we understand the facts to be. And then that everybody reads that beforehand that allows us to accelerate the decision. It allows us to memorialize our decisions or memorialize the answers, memorialize the answers to the tough questions that were asked of us. And then to track the action items to make certain that we can then follow up in a manner consistent with those decisions. So that's kind of been top of mind to us because that level of rigor has been new to us, but has been enormously valuable in this ever-changing business environment where we, where we need to be very cognizant and very quick in our decision-making and answering those tough questions that either clients ask of us or that we ask of ourselves. 
So if you make decisions, at least on a high level, through the lens of your values, even if something doesn't go to plan, you're still happier on the other side than doing something otherwise. For sure. For sure. Yep. I guess that's really the definition of acting with integrity, right? Making certain that you're acting in accordance to, in harmony with your values. And that's that's enormously valuable. It's enormously valuable as an individual, but it's also enormously valuable that the organization can say that because I think that team members, team members or potential new hires gravitate to an organization who who aspires and has a mechanism to try to, to try to do that effectively and consistently. But there's a lot of discussion around these visions and values and stuff like that. How do you set yourself apart in that? Because every company has a wonderful slogan and a story. Well, that's a fair, that's a fair question. So our CEO and CFO met in at Columbia Business School in the executive MBA program. And during that time, they took some courses with a professor there uh, named Paul Ingram. And many years ago, we actually brought Paul Ingram into Spark, which is our company conference, to lead us through our, our own individual values building exercise. And, and that was singularly important on a personal level because it gave us it gave us a framework, definitions, kind of a structure, a new way of thinking about values, because it's not kind of something common in our lexicon. And through kind of a gamification process as abbreviated what he does in his classes, he helped us, each of us, build our own values hierarchy. And after we did that, he actually took this information, he ran it through a semantic network, semantic analysis, and said, hey, Stoa, based on your individual values, this is the, this shows kind of what your aggregate values are based on your individual values. And it was only at that point, Tots, that we actually then started thinking about what our corporate values would be and deriving something externally communicated for our values and our mission based on that. And I think that's a kind of, that bottoms approach, I think sets us apart from organizations who may have a committee that dictates from on high down kind of what the aspirational values from an organization should be, which may not be reflective of, of the actual values of, of individuals. So that's the approach that we took. And I think it was probably beneficial for a lot of our team members who did that themselves. And I think it benefited us in providing clarity in how we as an organization had developed and communicate our values. Wonderful. A bottom-up approach. That's definitely the way to build a strong foundation. Well, mm-hmm. Stephen, thank you so much. Obviously, very intelligent and I guess knowledgeable background. So I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. This has been great. I appreciate the opportunity to come here and chat. Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. I also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash tats talks for video of today's podcast hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes entrepreneurial tips and more see you over there This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.